All right. Welcome, welcome. Disability Law Show. So good to have you back with us today. John Scholes here as always, and Tamara Gopian, partner, Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Always feel comfortable reaching out to Tamara and her team anytime, dealing with a disability insurer, whether it's uh, trying to get on claim or being told you're you're getting kicked off. It's, it's always daunting. It's stressful. It's what you don't need to be dealing with every day, and there is help out there. Just simply reach out to Tamara and her team. Have a chat. Just Pick up a phone, have a chat. There's no, uh, you know, you're not locked into anything. Just uh, just get your bearings, get some more information and education. How do you do it? Simple, one 821 5900 for a lengthier private conversation. Or you want to drop an email just to uh, lightly get your foot in the door. That's simply help at disabilityrights.ca. But tomorrow we got a lot of emails already coming through, a lot of questions to get through over the hour. But we always start off with the uh, case of the day or a week that was something you've been dealing with, pal. What do you got for us this week? So this week, I was just recently retained uh, on behalf of the husband of a client, a former client who sadly passed away uh, last year. And it, I got retained in respect of a potential life insurance claim. And so we don't talk a lot about life insurance or even critical illness claims, John, but they actually are very closely connected to the disability work that we do day in and day out. So I thought I would feature, um, you know, my, my client situation uh, in broad strokes, of course, but really touch on how related and relevant these kinds of claims are to the work that we do. And, and the core of it is this. Disability law really is based in policy. It's a contract, and it's a contract that exists for most people between this insurance company and their employer because they're on a group plan. And for some people, it could be individual plans, and you know they may not even realize they have life insurance through their employer. You know, there's a whole host of different permutations. Critical illness, though, in particular, is typically a private plan. But the core of it is this policy. There's always policy wording that underpins all of these insurance pieces. And the same principles apply, John, to a disability policy as it would for a critical illness policy or life insurance or any other kind of, you know, I could talk about four or five different other kinds of products that are out there by these insurers. But these are the three main ones. And What it is, is there will be an insuring agreement. There's a portion that says we will pay as insurance company if, and you want to meet the if, right? If you're in a particular situation for critical illness, there's usually a laundry list of things that they will not pay. (laughs) And they never tell you that when you take out the insurance. But once you get the policy, it's usually like a page or two of things they will not pay, or they will pay a claim that's related to this, but not to this. So if you're in a CI type situation, critical illness, and you're not certain whether the insurer has properly denied your claim, it is not that hard for a disability lawyer like myself or anyone on our team to take a quick look at that policy and give you some very clear advice on whether or not there's a basis to start a claim. Life insurance, though, is an interesting one, and, and this is where I want to feature in broad strokes the what I was uh, what I got retained on. We resolved my client's disability claim, and we ensured that all the other coverages that she had with her employer were preserved. What that means is that we only settled out the disability part. All the other things that she had with her group employment plan should have been remaining in place, and that included life insurance. Long story short, the employer, I think, made some mistakes, or perhaps the insurer made some mistakes, but there are some mistakes that were made to the point where a letter was actually written to my client saying, we made a mistake. You don't have these coverages. 
we're sending back the three or four months of premiums that you've paid for this and we're, we're sort of done. The problem with that though, of course, is that she passed away around in that period of time. And so her husband, of course, has reached out and is saying, look, we should have had this coverage. And I absolutely agree with him. Just because these mistakes were made and just because you settled a disability claim doesn't mean necessarily that all your other coverages and policies go away. And so it could be that this is a one-off. Maybe this doesn't resonate with some of our listeners or perhaps people are thinking, wait a minute, I think I had a policy that was voided about something. I'm not sure. These are absolutely issues and, and areas that we can help. Consults are absolutely free. Just send me the policy. Let me put some eyes on it and let's problem solve as to whether or not there's an avenue to pursue these kinds of claims and coverages. Because John, it, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars for life insurance, depending on how high your earnings are or what your employer covers you for. I can tell you most employers will cover you for double your salary. So imagine what that would wow. do for your family members. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's not an insignificant amount. And so I just, my concern is that people hear us talk about disability law day in and day out, great. And maybe not thinking about us putting on these other hats, which we absolutely do and we can absolutely help with. So I just thought it was a good feature. Um, it, it's a difficult situation that my client is in, absolutely. I can tell you it was really heart-wrenching for me when she passed away. Um, and of course, now supporting her husband in a situation like this. Um, I'm happy to do it though. And I thought it was just an important one to start off our show. Indeed. And again, reaching out to Tamar anytime to discuss uh, your own personal matter. Don't hesitate. That just shows you why you just pick up that phone and, uh, and break the ice, right? one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. You want to use the email route as well. I want to get to uh, to Bryce here, Tamar, first email for the show today. It says, hey, Tamar, I've been on long-term disability for just over a year now. The other day, I noticed that someone's following me with a camera. I've been going to the gym twice a week per my doctor's advice to help ease my stress and anxiety. I'm worried that the insurance company is going to use this against me. Should I stop going if the insurance company is recording me? Uh, what can I do if they stop paying me because of this? Oh, Bryce. So look, I think the first thing we really want to understand is, is it, is it, are they actually following him? John? I mean, look, you don't know. This is something that disability insurers do and it's surveillance. They will sometimes hire an investigator to follow you around for two, three, four days just to see what your level of activity is. And they will report that back to the insurance company. Now, if the insurance company though, first of all, is doing this, and second of all, is going to rely on the observations from the surveillance to deny your claim, they have to tell you. Okay. And frankly, there's not much Bryce can do if that is actually what's being done. And if in fact they do actually deny his claim, at least in terms of preventing that denial. Now, if they do deny on that basis though, Bryce, and your doctor has recommended that you go in and take on this level of activity, this seems to be something that has been endorsed by his medical team to go to the gym and you know alleviate the anxiety, which I'm assuming is related to his disability claim, then I don't think the insurance company is on good footing on claims like this. In fact, there's multiple cases that I can think of. Few go to dis few cases in disability actually go to trial, John, but of the ones that do, where there have been surveillance has been surveillance advanced by the disability insurer, I can tell you the courts don't find it very persuasive. In fact, generally they will say the probative value is does not out outweigh the prejudice, which essentially means that 
you know, what the insurance company is trying to do, which is to attack someone's credibility, that the truthfulness of what they're presenting is really not persuasive to a court or a judge. So I don't know why insurers still do it, frankly. I think that they really do come at these claims sometimes with a high degree of cynicism. And, you know, adjusters have various tools at their disposal. And if they can spend two, three, four, five thousand dollars on surveillance, and that will mean they can cut your claim, you know, six months sooner, then you do the cost benefit analysis on that, then they win, right? The insurer wins, the adjuster can close out the claim, which is essentially what they want to do. But I think that the only way really that the insurer can do this properly is if in fact they know that you are doing things that you weren't supposed to be doing or doing things that are different from what you've reported to the insurance company or to your own doctors. So the bottom line really is, is that I would hope that Bryce, along with anyone else who might be listening, is heeding my advice that open honesty with dialogue with your adjuster and your insurer and your doctors is the most important feature of anything that you do with disability litigation. If you have nothing to hide, then there are no worries, right? That's what it comes down to. And the vast majority of my clients are in that boat. There's nothing to hide. Even when surveillance is done, it's not that compelling. Even when the insurance company has used it to decline the claim, oftentimes I can turn that on its head, John, because it's really not as as damning as they think it is, or they've missed something, or they didn't properly review some other component, or maybe they have just observed my client going out for an hour to the gym and not at all for the rest of the three or four days of surveillance. And perhaps that is consistent with his or her level of activity. So I think that the conclusion here is that, look, I'm sorry if he's feeling paranoid, if that's in fact what's happening. But if it is, don't worry about it as long as you're getting the endorsement from your doctor so to reach that level of activity. And if the insurer is going to come back around and terminate your claim improperly on the basis of these surveillance observations, I'm hoping the next phone call is to us. How about lousy surveillance? I mean, should they not be seen this whole time? I mean, you know, that's the whole point of surveillance and catching you in your natural habitat is for them not to be so obvious to Bryce. He caught them. I mean, that's going to taint the whole thing, no? It It, it is. It will. I mean, look, I, I never want someone to engage with someone who's surveilling them. Like, I don't want necessarily someone to go up to the investor and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, like, I, I, I think that would be worse, frankly, for Bryce. By the same token, the, the awareness that this might be going on, you know, maybe he asks his adjuster about it or, or perhaps, you know, he makes a note for himself that this is when he observed the investigator and what he was doing on that day. Keep yourself a little journal for that period of time, because if the insurer then comes back around and says, look, this is what we saw you do. He's got his own account of this is where I was going. Like I, I've seen surveillance, John, where people are going to medical offices. They're, they're actually going to to their doctor for treatment. And the insurance company is like, well, look, you're driving and you're driving yourself and you parked and then you went into this building for an hour. Yeah, they're going to see their doctor. right? So, So it's really not oftentimes as compelling as the insurer makes it out to be. But I also don't want disability claimants to think that they need to be holed up at home and in bed the whole time in order to get their benefits. That's not what the test is. In fact, not at all. It's that you're, you've got a disability that prevents you from working. And if you're doing things and engaging in the world as part of your recovery, that is absolutely fine because you can then demonstrate to the insurer that you're doing everything that you can to get better. 
Yeah, surveillance, we've done whole shows on that before, so uh, maybe that'll come up again. But they you know, they really shouldn't worry, as you said, if you're just doing what you should be doing through medical advice, just uh, continue onward, and, and, and there you go. And if, if really, I mean, is, is it always a, a good idea just maybe ask the insurer if they are surveilling you? Because if not, you got someone following you. That's the next stop is police, right? Absolutely. Well, so that was the other yeah. part of it is that, look, if, if yeah. we're not certain that it's the insurer and perhaps he is being followed, then yes, you know, you do want to make sure that, that you know, you're, you're sort of recording that more officially um, if it's not the insurer being involved. And, you know, I'm of two minds in terms of engaging the insurer because you might sort of be raising red flags if you do actually ask them, are you having, are you having me followed? Um, right. But I also have a whole host of clients and claimants who have a high degree of paranoia, which is related to their mental health conditions, in which case they may need that assurance from the insurer that they are not being followed or they're not being surveilled. So look, it's a case by case, which is why we say to people, don't hesitate to have a chat with us. We'll we'll get, set you off on the right track if this is a situation that you find yourself in. Bryce, appreciate the note, and you know how to reach out with phone call now to follow up, one 821 5900 Short break, and back to more of your questions and emails as we continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show, John Scholes and Tamar Agobi in San Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. You want to reach out to Tamar and her team. There's uh, no problem, no obligation just to make that phone call, have a chat. That's one 821 5900 on your own time. Email help at disabilityrights.ca. And for other questions, you can ask anonymously. By the way, absolutely free. It's called mydisabilityquestions.com. Use that anytime you'd like. Tamar, can an employer, now kind of switching over to the employer side, can they have any right. influence or role with a disability claim for one of their employees? Because that would be a natural question for someone in, in that regard, if they're an employee, right? Possibly. Absolutely. And and this goes back to what I was saying at the top of the show, is that most people um, who, who speak to us about their disability claims actually have their policies connected with their employment and their employer. So it is a very important question to think about. Look, how much involvement does my employer have? And to your question, John, can they actually influence the outcome? Like, can they influence whether I get approved or denied? So- the easy answer is not really, they're not supposed to, I can't prove it, but sometimes I think they, they might, and I'll tell you why. So when you apply for disability benefits, you've got to submit three forms, right? So you've got a form that you prepare, member statement, plan, plan, member statement, whatever you want to call it, and then you've got the medical part of it, the attending physician statement, medical certificate, some such. And then the third form actually comes from your employer typically. And that form, the plan sponsor statement, you know, whatever you want to call it, again, the employer statement, will include, the employer has to complete that, and they will include some critical information, which is your job title, your perhaps the job description of the job you were doing at the time that you're asserting your disability claim, the last day that you worked, how much you were earning, do you have insurance coverage? Are you getting money elsewhere? Is the, is the employer still paying you? Like So there are important components of that form that will influence how the adjuster or adjudicator is going to look at your claim, specifically because in that first part when you apply for disability benefits, the test is, are you totally disabled from your own occupation? And that's whether it's short-term or long-term, by the way, it's your own occupation. So how your employer defines what your job title is and your duties are, are directly related to whether or not an insurance company is going to accept whether or not you're totally disabled, right? So you want to make sure that what's being reported to the insurer is consistent with what you were doing before you stopped working. 
And sometimes that could mean modified work. Sometimes it could mean that you're doing a whole host of physical jobs, for example. I mean, it's or it's more physical than the job title. Maybe it's more physical than the job description. You know, those kinds of things I've seen a lot with jobs that are not very, very clearly defined um, as this is, you know, the role or the thing that, you know, this particular individual is doing as an occupation. So that's one part of it that I think is critical and can absolutely influence the decision of the insurer indirectly, mind you, but it can. More directly, though, adjusters will routinely have a contact at your employer to discuss what kind of employee you were. So I have routinely seen four or five questions an adjuster will put together to your employer without your knowledge, by the way, of you know, what were they doing? Did they have mm. absenteeism issues? Did they have performance issues? Were there workplace issues? Because we talk about this a lot. Disability insurers don't want to get involved in crappy work situations. And so if they're <laughs> live to a potential, you know, disconnect or interpersonal issue that's happening with the claimant and their employer, that will trigger them to that, right? And they may be more live to that and say, hey, this is a work setting thing. This is not a true disability claim. Wrongly, by the way, and they're not often right on that issue generally, but John, you can see if the employer reports, yeah, you know what, this employee was on a performance plan and no, you know, we hadn't noticed any work issues other than this, you know, I don't know, performance or whatever it is. We didn't notice any health issues before this individual went off work. Then you could bet that adjuster is going to have greater scrutiny on the medical support that you have on your application to try and get benefits approved. So, I think generally at the outset, those are the main ways that an employer can have an impact. And then you think about a situation where someone might be approved and then they're trying to get back to work, John. So then at that point, the adjuster has to have further coordination with the employer. This is, of course, assuming that someone has the sign off from their own doctors to return back. Then the insurer will coordinate with your employer about a return to work whether any restrictions or limitations need to be put in place, whether an accommodated return has to happen, whether that return to work is gradual. So, you know, start out for a couple of hours for a few days, that sort of thing. Um, And so there is some involvement there. And I've seen from claims files and clients who've told me, sometimes they even get pulled into a meeting, virtual or otherwise, between their employer, their insurance adjuster and themselves to figure out how that return to work is going to go. And that can be very uncomfortable. I've actually sat in on one, John, for a client um, before, and it can be very uncomfortable. So look, you know, it doesn't happen always, but it can happen. And so individuals really cannot necessarily control a lot of what that communication is between the insurer and the employer. Hopefully, I hope that everyone's doing things above board. and Generally, they are. So I don't want people to be worried or paranoid about it. But they should absolutely know that there will be full disclosure. And if you've got a disconnect with your employer shortly before your leave, that will be part of what will be reported to the disability insurer. So no reason to not include that as part of the medical profile. But I think where it gets a little bit sticky is if the employment situation triggered a health issue, um, and that's the reason why you went off. As I said before, sometimes the insurer uses that as a means to decline a claim to say, hey, you're not totally disabled. If you're in a different work setting or a different work environment, you'd be working. So you need to figure out what's happening with an employment side of things and not disability. And sometimes it's not that cut and dry, John, which is why we do what we do. 
Exactly. Want to get to uh, to Juan. Juan would have our next email. It says, guys, I injured my back uh, at work about six months ago. Through WSIB, uh, I was able to get some rehab that helped a lot. My doctor has cleared me to try a gradual return to work with modified duties next month. My work recommended that I apply for long-term disability benefits, which I did, but I was denied. The insurance company said I did not qualify for benefits because I was, quote-unquote, not continuously uh, totally disabled through the elimination period or beyond. What does that even mean? Can I fight this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, Juan. Uh, I, th- I think you might be able to fight it, but let's get to the core of this legal speak of this continuous total disability through the elimination period. So when individuals like Juan apply for disability benefits, usually it'll start with a short-term claim, which it sounds like it has. And then at some point, it should theoretically transition to long-term, or at the very least, he's got to apply for long-term, which is exactly what he's done. And so when the long-term disability insurer is looking at your claim, they will look at that initial short-term disability period of time, actually, and that's called the elimination period or the waiting period. It's a hold period before your long-term disability benefits kick in. And some disability policies say you have to demonstrate that you are totally disabled through that whole period of time from the moment you stopped working through either a short-term period of time or this elimination period, whatever time frame it is, before you get to dollar one with us on LTD. And usually that period of time, John, I would say is, you know, three, four months, sometimes it's as much as six months. And insurers are looking for that continuity. And when you've got a profile like one where it says, his, he says to us, his doctors have now cleared him to try a graduated return to work. Then the insurer is going to say, well, hang on, then you're not fully totally disabled through that full period of time, that waiting period that we need before we start paying LTD. But I'm actually not sure that's the case. (laughs) When I look at the timeframes and what he describes as a back injury for six months, um, if he's only just been cleared for a return, then I suspect actually the long-term disability insurer does owe some component of benefits. And in fact, they may even owe some component of benefits for the graduated return to work period. So I think that it's tricky, but it may be one that might be worth pursuing for one, especially if his return to work is not successful. So think about one returning back to work. He's gradually returning back. Maybe he achieves full-time hours, John. Maybe he doesn't. And if he doesn't, his claim might be a recurrence. Essentially, what may happen is that his back prevents him from continuing to work altogether once again. And the long-term disability benefit policy plans usually have that window of time that say, if your claim, you know, if your claim rises up again and you've got a health issue that persists and you're prevented from working, usually within that first six-month window of you trying to return back, we're going to pay benefits again. And I'm concerned that perhaps in Juan's case, the LTD insurer is trying to avoid that, that exact situation by simply just saying no, as opposed to approving, paying the top up, paying the month or two they're supposed to before his return or through his return back to work. And by virtue of doing that, really as a disincentive to Juan to actually pursue the claim. So I don't, I yeah, and I don't like that at all, of course, in any sense or manner, because that really gives the insurance company a pass when they should actually be paying. So 
I, in my mind, this could be one where I, I speak to one perhaps a little further with perhaps take a wait and see approach, really drill down on the timeframes and see what it is um, if there is exposure to the long-term disability insurer, because it could be one that might be worth pursuing. And and I'm going to add one other thing, uh, John, if I may, to his mm-hmm. profile, and that's this. He mentions WSIB. And so I think we don't talk a lot about WSIB because we, this is not something that we actually do as part of our services. Right. We don't get right. involved in WSIB claims. But it often can be a related component to our disability claims because, you know, if people are injured at work, you know, they are going to pursue and their employer has, you know, workers' comp, they're going to pursue workers' compensation. And most disability policies will say if you're entitled to workers' comp or you get some kind of income component from, from workers' comp, we're going to deduct that actually from what we're paying you or should be paying you. And I got to wonder in Juan's situation whether that's influencing the insurer as well. Maybe they're thinking, look, he's going to be made whole between his employment income and the WSIB people. So let's just not get involved into the mix of all of this. But that's not necessarily correct either, John, because what if workers' comp doesn't pay fully? What if actually Juan has a claim there too where they didn't pay all the amounts that they should have paid? It's too easy for the disability insurer to simply say no even if they should be saying yes and getting a credit, right? Do you see the difference? And it's important to get that approval, in fact, and not get the no, or at least challenge the disability insurer on the no, because you don't know necessarily, if you're one, how this is going to go. Are you going to get resistance from the employer? Are you going to get resistance from WSIB? And then you add everything else to the mix, including the disability insurer, and there could be multiple avenues here for compensation for him. That's the key, is that one or more of these entities need to pay him, and I just don't want him to leave money on the table. Juan, good call making that email uh, reach out, but now I want you to make that phone call, talk to Tamara and her team as well, because obviously it uh, could develop into a complex situation for you or I, but to get the pros on your side, man, make it so much easier. How do you do it? You go to one 821 5900 You've already got the email. The website as well, you can do some uh, some reading and educating, and that would be uh, disabilityrights.ca. There's also links there to our TV show and uh, past uh, radio episodes as well. But we'll continue with more of your emails and questions as we roll through uh, lots more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right. Welcome back, Disability Law Show. So good to have you tuning in on the show today. You can reach out to Tamar and her team. Phone call would be the uh, most obvious way, right? one 821 5900 Emails help at disabilityrights.ca. And another way for you to ask questions online through your tablet, uh, your phone, even your desktop, my disabilityquestions.com. That's free. It's anonymous. It's searchable. So you can use that whenever you want. So when you represent someone tomorrow for a disability claim who pays for all the expenses that come up during the litigation, like doctors, records, uh, export, uh, expert reports, uh, filing fees, all that stuff, who has to cover the, cover the nut for that? We do, John. Nice. We do. Nice. So, you know, and, and I think it's a really important question because um, I can tell you there have been some changes with um, at least the Lost Society in Ontario uh, about, you know, really having a, an open dialogue with clients when they retain us about what that will look like, who's paying what and when. And the things that you describe, these medical reports and filing fees, court costs, this sort of thing, these are called disbursements. And in the past, there hasn't been a lot of good information around what can you expect on disbursements for for litigated claims and what should you be telling your client about that. And so I commend Law Society for actually encouraging lawyers to have this discussion early. 
I can tell you at ST Law, we've been doing this for years. We always have this discussion with our clients right out, out of the gates. Because especially with disability litigation, John, our clients, they, they don't have money to pay for this stuff, right? I mean, right. this is why we work exclusively on contingency. I mean, you know, they're not paying us anything at all whatsoever unless we're successful in getting money on their behalf. And we will actually include these disbursements as part of the conversation with the insurance company. So it's not just a question of the insurer paying the disability benefits that they should have always paid, but they will add on top not only a contribution towards legal fees, but also dollar for dollar repayment on disbursements. And so, look, we don't make any money on this, John. It's not that. It's not a profit center. But I think it's important for people to hear from us that retaining us actually helps this scenario. It helps in the sense that, you know, you don't really need to worry about okay, I've got to pay the three hundred dollar fee to file my my matter in court. I've got to pay you know, my doctor again to do another updated report, uh, all of that we will incur. And and I'm actually really strategic about it too. I will not incur disbursements unless I think that there is value add to the claim. And so I'm not in the in the business of, of running up these big disbursements bills because I know that then at the end of the day, it potentially could be a hindrance for my client getting fair compensation. So I'm very mindful of that. Um, but I also know that doctors will charge several hundred dollars to do a medical report, John, and, and our clients simply can't pay that. Um, but I'm more than happy to fund that. My firm does that um, in order to support the disability claim. That's the bottom line. And sometimes there are sophisticated disability claims where that medical report is critical in moving that needle with the disability insurer. So if you're wondering, look, what's it going to mean to to you know, retain tomorrow, retain her firm, move this forward. Nothing, zero. Uh, and we will incur these costs. We will talk to you about the range of what disbursements could look like for your matter, you know, who we're going to recommend to get records from, and we will facilitate all of that. The idea is that once you retain us, hopefully this part of it goes away. It's very, very simple. We'll take care of everything. And hopefully at the end of it, generally speaking, we are very successful in getting good resolutions for our clients. Love it. Tanisha is up next. Uh, Tamara, good email here. says, hey, guys, I've been diagnosed with a rare autoimmune condition that causes swelling throughout my body. When this is aggravated, it makes working impossible and most day-to-day functions unmanageable. It's much worse uh, with stress. I'm an upper-level executive for a large national transportation company. The job is pretty stressful to begin with, but has become much worse over the last two years when there was a new VP appointed in my division. The situation got really bad at work and the stress aggravating my condition to the point where I couldn't get out of bed. My doctors have said that I can't go back to work uh, at any environment because the stress could uh, would cause me to regress significantly. I applied for LTD insurance, but my claim was denied because they said it was a workplace issue. I get that my work environment was part of the problem, but if my doctors are saying I can't work anywhere, shouldn't I be entitled to benefits? Yes, Tanisha. Yes. A hard yes. This is exactly what I was talking about earlier in the show, John, is that it's too easy for disability insurers to make it a workplace issue. And that is not that that could be nothing further from the truth for Tanisha's situation for exactly the reason that she describes Her doctors have said she cannot go back to work in any work setting just because the work setting has triggered the health issues or has made the health issues worse because it sounds like she's got um, some underlying health issues as well doesn't mean that the disability insurer gets a pass. 
Absolutely not. She is totally disabled from working at her own occupation and the benefits should flow from there. Full stop. And I think what I get frustrated by is that it's clear that Tanisha tried to keep working, John. I mean, she's saying this has been getting worse over a number of years. I give her a lot of credit for that. And, you know, I think that because disability insurers, you know, really don't want to get involved in, in, in poor work situations, I understand that. And they will say, you know, the availability of work doesn't impact our analysis. That's fine. But the starting point is having to support these individuals while they are trying to work on their recovery and their health. And the fact that there's resistance in a situation like this, in my mind, is a no-brainer. This is exactly where we need to be getting involved for clients and claimants. Because I can tell you that once I start that legal claim, it's not going to be that adjuster who's saying no and is being influenced by other motivational factors and profits and all these other things that adjusters do. It's going to be their lawyer and someone appointed from their company who's going to look at this and say, if she's got persisting health issues and they're supported by her doctor that she cannot work, then why are we not paying this claim? This isn't one that we're going to come before a court and justify what we've done here. Absolutely not. And in fact, in most of these claims, John, they've actually exacerbated, made the situation worse by not providing Tanisha her benefits. And so it's difficult, but I actually find that to be helpful leverage to the insurance company to say, hey, guys, what are you doing here? I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me. Just because there's a work profile here that's difficult doesn't necessarily mean that there are not standalone health issues that support the disability claim that should absolutely be paid and compensated for for Tanisha sooner rather than later. Because the other worry that I have with Tanisha is, you know, will she be able to actually, in fact, return back to her own occupation or in any occupation whatsoever? Both are on the table when doctors say you cannot be working at all in any environment. Tanisha, thank you so much for that uh, that email. Again, reaching out is always good. That second step to make that phone call to uh, Tamar and her team. Easily done. There's, uh, you know, no harm in doing that. one 821 5900 is how you go ahead and do that. And you can always go to disabilityrights.ca to learn more and uh, reach out for contact there as well. we got a few minutes to go. Get to another email or two if we got time as we continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. And, uh, yeah, we're back. A few minutes to go in the Disability Law Show. Thank you so much for tuning in today you can always reach out after before the show as well uh before the show airs or afterwards anytime really 1-855-821-5900 as we uh, make that phone call and there's always help at disabilityrights.ca again help at disabilityrights.ca tomorrow gopian here of course doing all the heavy lifting on the show again today tomorrow question when a person is putting together an ltd application because that's fun what sort of information needs to be included to get that claim approved any uh any tips in that regard because you've worked on both sides of course i have worked on both sides you you took the words right out of my mouth john (laughs) for our listeners you know i have spent uh, a little bit of time uh working for the the big bad insurance company uh and defending them for for a period of time until i saw the light uh and so look i mean i'm gonna put that defense hat on and say i think that the more details you can offer to the insurer of symptoms supporting disability the better And I think that that not only comes from your own application material as a claimant, but also the application material that's completed by your doctor. Because, John, they're forms, right? They're standard forms that, you know, the Insurance Bureau of Canada has approved and these insurance companies have pretty well the same type of information. 
And they give you these tiny little boxes <laughs> to put in the responses to, you know, treatment and symptoms and, you know, what what's going on with it from a health perspective. And I really, really don't like those forms, at least as it relates to the doctors, because I think it's too tempting for the doctors to just check off yes, no, yes, no, put one word responses um, and, and have that submitted as the disability claim. And I think that when that occurs, inevitably what happens is the insurance company, the adjuster who's assigned will say, well, we can't approve right away because we don't have enough medical information. So now you've just delayed the application probably by another 30 days, maybe more. They might write to your doctor and say, hey, can you provide the chart notes? Maybe do a report. Here are the things that we still need. Then the doctor is going to take another few weeks, if sometimes more, to get that information over back to the adjuster. Maybe the adjuster sends it to one of their own doctors to review, right? So like the back and forth of that at the initial phase will really take a long time sometimes for claimants. And that's really when they're really desperate to try and continue getting their income support, especially if they didn't get short-term disability or maybe they only got EI for a period of time. And so that initial phase is really, really important. I can tell you that insurance adjusters you know, they really don't have a lot of medical specialty, right, John? I mean, these these people, maybe they come from a rehab background, you know, like a physio type thing or some other nurse practitioner, perhaps, perhaps at best. But a lot of them are just graduates from university and an entry level position in an insurance company. And that's the job they're doing. And the training that they're offered is very limited as well. And so, and the resources they have to review medical information is limited. So they're not going to have a lot of medical understanding. So when you can spoon feed the information to them, that will help big time. Okay. And if, especially if it's a subjective claim. So if it's a claim where it's based in that things that you cannot see on a scan, so it's not a broken bone or a twisted ankle, it's mental health claims, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, Maybe it's long COVID symptoms. You know, these kinds of profiles of claims, we see a lot of resistance from the adjusters because there's, again, lots of cynicism, but also poor understanding on how these symptoms can impact an individual, especially if it's not also validated by the doctor in their material that they submit to the insurance company. So you want all of, in an ideal world, all the stars will align, all of the information is comprehensive. Maybe you get ahead of it. Maybe you get your doctor to send the chart notes as well at the same time with the application. That might save you a step. Um, but sometimes it can vary depending on the disability claim. So I'm trying to give sort of a one size fits all um, and really just get people to think about, okay, what the insurance company bottom line is looking at is my job, my job duties, and my health. And if those two things are not connected, in other words, if my job duties cannot be done by virtue of my health issues, then I should, in theory, be getting disability benefits. So as much information you can provide on all of that, the better the claim process will go. We got time for Rachel. I think at least one email here says, hey, tomorrow I've had depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, but the pandemic had made it worse. I started having frequent panic attacks and eventually stopped working altogether. I'm getting, uh, I'm getting LTD payments, but recently the insurance company's adjuster is being difficult, almost dismissive of my condition and pressuring me to go back to work when I'm not ready. What can I do? Rachel. So look, I think in the short term, what I would maybe suggest is actually getting some kind of a medical note or report from your doctor saying, you know, you're not ready to return. 
getting the most up-to-date information over to the insurance company in live time is huge and critical because it may just resist the temptation of the adjuster who's really just focused on closing out your claim. And John, with mental health, sometimes the adjuster's fallback position is that you can continue getting this treatment and be working at the same time. I've seen that time and again, and you know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. When you are disabled by virtue of depression, anxiety, and all sorts of symptoms related to mental health, could be a whole host of things, post-traumatic stress disorder, ADHD. There's so, so many health mental health conditions that that you know exhibit themselves, especially through the pandemic, making things worse. I mean, we're kind of out of it, but we're not yet. And I think that the lack of sensitivity by adjusters around these kinds of issues frustrates me. And I want to be able to help people like Rachel, uh, but it's not an overnight solution. And so my hope is that perhaps getting some further detailed information, like a medical report from her doctor, maybe her psychologist or psychiatrist, if she's getting specific mental health support, getting that kind of information over to the adjuster might just be enough to push off the insurance company's inevitable desire to cut off claims. Uh, but unfortunately, this is what they do, which is why we do what we do. And so I want to be able to support Rachel right now in the short term, but then really sort of contend with the reality that if the insurance company is focused on closing out her claim, they may do it regardless of the medical information. And frankly, as a disability lawyer, when they do that, it actually makes the claim easier to fight, right? For me, from my perspective, I'm just simply going to look back at her own medical records and say, hey, insurance company, you ignored all of this. Her own doctors are saying that she's not ready. She's not capable of working just yet. She needs further treatment and getting those details in medical reports over to the insurer is critical. And if, of course, if they do cut off your claim, Rachel, you know where to get me absolutely free consultations. Happy to talk to anyone as many times as they need. Let's just talk through these options and see whether or not there's a, there's an opportunity for us to help. And we are just about out of time for this hour. Great stuff, my friend. As always, you're in good hands with Tamara and her team, but uh, you just got to reach out, make that initial phone call and just have a chat. There's uh, there's no obligation just to just get some information, some education, right? Because it can be really scary, daunting, and actually stressful dealing with these uh, these insurance companies. But your, uh, your life preserver right here, 1-855-821-5900 would be the number. Again, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Shrink that down to the firm website can be found at justdisabilityrights.ca. And for short, easy to read, non-legalese, concise memos on LTD. If you have any questions, you can go to ltdfaq.ca as well. Easy and free resource for you to use, ltdfaq.ca. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.